Good morning. This is Sunday Ozarks at Large. I'm Kyle Kellums. With me is Heim Goodman-Strauss. Hey, good morning, Kyle. Good morning, Heim. He's a math professor at the University of Arkansas. And you often are here on Sunday mornings to talk about math. What's on your mind this weekend? Well, I was wanting to talk about what can be computed. Not everything? Not everything. That's amazing. Well, obviously, some things like the fairs of the heart. Oh, sure. Art. Art. Now, yeah, you know, I'm actually asking... Can every mathematical question be computed? Well, I'm betting by the way you asked that, the answer is no. Not every mathematical thing can be computed. Yeah, it's one of the great insights of of 20th century mathematics. Alan Turing, in particular, um, discovered a class of things that that are very much computational kinds of questions, like is such and such a number prime? Is this number divisible by seven? Um, That can't be computed, that there's no computational method for deciding the answer. It's just an absolutely amazing thing. You're talking yes or no answers, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so, okay. for example, here's one that nobody knows if it can be computed at all. Um, is it true or false? So the you'd have some computation that would come up with true or false as the answer. Is it true or false that every even number is the sum of two primes? So, for example, 8 is 5 and 3, uh, 10 is 7 and 3, 12 is 5 and 7, Right. 68 is 7 and 61. Right. And so on. So so, so we know that you can go so far up, Oh, it's but been we checked do- way, okay. way out. But, but is there a way to actually write a computer, pro- pro- computer program that would definitively tell us in some short, finite amount of time? It might take up a huge amount of memory, might take a huge amount of time, but in some finite amount of time would actually answer that question, yes or no. And, and nobody actually knows the answer. So it's it has not been able to be computed yet? Has n- in no way whatsoever. Huh. Um, now, it may be that there's a way to do that, but nobody knows what it is. That's called the Goldbach conjecture. It's several hundred years old, very famous open problem. So back to the question, what can or can't be computed? Here's Turing's amazing insight. Okay. Well, these procedures are themselves mathematical objects. They can, you can ask about procedures that can take in procedures as input. And here's a very simple way to see that. On your hard drive, really your hard drive, all the information on it, all the photographs, mm-hmm. all the music, all mm-hmm. the programs, all the data, all of that is one giant number. That's it. Your hard drive is just a long series of zeros and ones. It's obvious from our perspective with electronic computers that programs can be encoded as great big numbers because mm-hmm. our hard drives do that. Mm-hmm. But Turing, you know, didn't have electronic computers, but he realized this in a slightly different way. So one can ask, okay, does such and such what, – what can I say about such and such a number? Does it encode a program? Well, that's not too hard to check. You just see if your computer can run it. Does such and such a number – encode a program that's going to stop or run forever. Like um, if we took the Collets function program and we ran it, it seems like it's always going to stop, but we don't really know for sure. So we could ask, um, okay, I've got this number. It encodes a program. Does that program stop or run forever? Okay. Yeah. Now here's the deal. Here's, a, here's an example of something that can't be computed. That question can't be computed. Like, you have to listen to this part a couple of times, probably, if you've never heard this before. So, um, suppose you had a computer program Mm -hmm. that could take in a number, and it would tell you if that number corresponded to a program that would run forever or stop. 
I'm, sim- okay. I'm simplifying this just a little mm. bit. Okay. Oh, <laughs> you are. Okay. Yeah, well, it's okay. <laughs> okay. So, like, if you take in a number 53 and it says, okay, well, the 53rd program or something like that runs forever. Okay. That's what it would tell you. All right. Okay. And, um, or the 53rd program doesn't run forever. Well, now, suppose that you had this magical debugging program, this magical program that could answer this question, and you do the following thing. You twist it around. You say that if the inputted number corresponds to a program that runs forever, our program is now is going to st- stop and say, yeah, that's the answer. If your inputted number halts, stops, then our new program will check and find that out and then go into some silly little, silly little loop and run forever. Now here comes the kicker. Our new program is itself a program, so it has a number. Say it's 178. Of course it won't be. Now we feed in 178 into itself. You know what this reminds me of? Yeah. It reminds me of when you take a mirror and you point at another mirror and it looks like there's this endless it is. row it's of mirrors. It's very similar to and that, it, yeah. And it, it becomes this sort of not self-fulfilling It is pro- self-referential. Oh, self-referential. It is, exactly. exactly. And it's self-referential much like the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago. Remember, this sentence is false. Right. Well, if this sentence is false, then it isn't, and it isn't. It's well, per- that's exactly what's going to happen motion here. sort of thing. If this program doesn't halt, then when I feed it into itself, it discovers that. It says, the program I was just fed doesn't halt. And so what does it do? It stops and spits out the answer. It halted. Right. If it doesn't halt, it halts. That doesn't right. make any sense. On the other hand, if it halts, when I feed it into itself, it discovers that. It says, the program I was just fed halted, and so then it goes into a silly little infinite loop. It doesn't halt. And so, again, that's a, that doesn't make any sense. If it halts, it doesn't it's halt. A paradox. It's a paradox. It's a mathematical paradox. So what went wrong was that this program didn't exist in the first place. So what the upshot of all of this is is that Turing created this mathematical problem purely about numbers that cannot be computed. And, again, yeah, it's, it's just like it's feeding into itself. It's self-reference. An amazingly beautiful thing. And um, You know, I read a book about this. Yes, you did. You told By me about Jan this. By Jan Eleven. I'd like. I haven't read it. And it sounds it's very interesting. Somewhere in my office. Yeah. She's my favorite mathematician that I haven't met. You're my favorite. Oh, thanks. But, I was but wondering I've never where that was her, going. So yeah. Now, um, she also in that book. It's about uh, Kurt Gödel and right. Alan Turing, and their work is very closely intertwined in some ways. Kurt Gödel proved he proved I might proved that there are mathematical theorems that have no proof, in effect. That sounds like a paradox. That totally sounds mind-blowing. But he actually proved... But he proved it. Okay. And, um, in fact, there is a way to use what I just talked about, the Turing's problem, Mm -hmm. to actually give a more modern proof of Gödel's theorem, the one I just said. So I'd like to come back to that. Okay. But I think we've had enough for the moment. (laughs) Good. Uh, Summation, uh, Gödel and Turing operating at a level beyond most of us. Oh. Don't you think? Mm. I think it's, it's amazing. It's <laughs> yeah, amazing it stuff. it is. All right. Heim, thanks a lot. Thank you. To be continued. Yes. Heim Goodman-Strauss is a math professor at the University of Arkansas.